Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Well, welcome to the Wednesday night American Liberties Call. And, uh... Uh, tonight again, we're going to be talking to Dave Mer- Merlin and everything that he um, uh, and uh, about what he is about Section 83, and as well as some other stance that the government will not answer. The um, the one thing that I've been noticing more lately, I mean, it's always been a constant thing. The IRS is doing this. The IRS is doing that. But, you know, it just dawned on me today that, um, well, it just didn't dawn on me, but, I mean, I had time to reflect. And, you know, I I was reading and watching this video that put out by, um, uh, you know, Lost Horizon there, Pete uh, Hendrickson, about his wife. And his wife goes to prison because she wouldn't commit perjury. You know, she went to jail for... You know, I mean, this is how criminal they're getting. You know, when they put you in jail and they want you to perjure yourself, you refuse to commit perjury, which is an offense of itself. And they st- and and because you won't lie, because you won't perjure yourself, they want you to sign a document. So you go and sign it under the penalties of perjury. And and you sign that you know uh, under uh, co- co- uh, uh, under duress or coercion, any 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 contempt of court. And I, I know it, you know. And we talk about you know with intent to go to jail. I don't know how this fits in, but I I, I tell you the um, it's it, it's getting serious out there. And I think that people ought to come together and start writing your legislatures, your you know your representatives, because this is this is really getting out, out of hand. And how much you know more is it going to get out of hand with what's going on towards the final year of uh, of Obama? It, it'll be very interesting to uh, to see what's taking place. But the uh, uh, but this is have to stop. And if we're going to sit and complain and say, you know, well, I'm not the citizen. They, you know, I'm not a United States citizen, or I'm a non-resident alien, and you know, and just and just uh, groan about it and moan about it. We're not we're not going to get anything done. I can tell you that right now. We're not going to do one thing except, you know, get what we deserve for not doing what we should have been doing. And I'm not saying, you know, pick up your arms and say, let's create a war. But, you know, if, you know, it's just like anybody. If somebody was to knock on your door and you don't know who it is, you've never seen him before, he, he gives you a bill 
that has nothing to do with you, you're not going to say, oh, gee whiz, okay, here's my money, or you're going to try to run and hide from them. You're going to say, hey, this ain't my bill. This ain't my money. This is you're trying to extort me. You're create you're you're corrupt and and you need to you know be dealt with. Okay, and the only way to do that is start complaining, going to the sheriff, going to your legislatures, to your mayor, to the commissioners' meeting. Show them how the the IRS does not apply to you. It's real simple. I mean, it is. It's real simple. If you read the the 58-page memorandum, and and you got to pull it out for for yourself because I'm not giving you legal advice. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying what Americans ought to do. If you want freedom, if that that you that you claim that you want, and you know, and you want the liberty. Of for your family and to do what you want to do when you want to do it and your property is your property and it belongs to nobody else then we got to start acting like it we got to do what what it you would do if it was your it, when it's your property not if it's your property but it is your property and until we do, until we do start doing something like that, ain't nothing going to happen. Now, yes, we filed a a, um, a lawsuit in South Dakota, and great things are coming out of it. We've, we're we're going to be filing a South Carolina, and I believe great things are going to be coming out of that. Now, when I say great things are coming out of it, there's been no mention from the courts there's been it's just been totally silent the only activity is that they had a lawyer and then all of a sudden this litigation lawyer made a made a notice of appearance but the other lawyer didn't back out didn't vacate that position now they got two attorneys and so that just kind of gives you the feeling, well, maybe the case ain't going away. Maybe the case is not going to be dismissed. And that's a big, big maybe. We don't know. We have no way of knowing. Like David said time and time again, you can't predict corruption. And and these people are corrupt. If they dismiss it, what do you do? Well, there's, there's, I guess there's avenues of doing doing something, but we'll, we'll see if we, if we cross that bridge. But now we're doing one in South Carolina, and and uh, and I think it ought to be done in other places across the country. And um, and and we need funding. You know, we need we need people that have money. You know. And and I'm I'm just going to say this. I'm going to go. I've been passing out e- emails about crowdfunding, cooperative community getting together. Together we can make a a big noise. Okay. If just imagine if somebody went to court, and and they you know and they need to appeal their case, and they owe an attorney twenty five grand, thirty five grand. And yes, they need an attorney to go to an appeal, and we all know about attorneys. So I don't need a bunch of emails telling tell me what demigods they are. I I realize what they are, 
But the thing of, of it is they have a necessary evil and value. So, you know, if if we can come together and 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 20 of us are making so much money that a thousand dollars would be a drop in the hat we could help somebody out you know and help them get what you know get their appeal and help people in prison and so forth so we need to come together on this stuff people and we really do and so and and we need to um uh, pass out brochures, and 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 my ultimate goal is to get this code breaker, the Section 83 equation, in the hands of every accountant throughout the country. But I can't do it alone. And shortly, um, I can see it now that people are starting to get it together. Things are starting to be active in the crowdfunding community, and I'm excited about that. So with that being said, let's get caught up to date on, on any of the news or the events. And so I'd like to introduce from Washington State, Dave Maryland. Thanks, Chris. Can you hear me? Yep, can hear you well. How about that? I have uh, pasted into the uh, chat window here three different cases. Security Bank of Minnesota versus Commissioner. Tyler versus Carter, and Waltner versus Commissioner of Internal Revenue. And if uh, you're on the call and today's not your cup of tea, remember there's an entire archive here at 87488 American Liberties, and my archive is at 59615, No Confidence, with David Merlin. That's me. Nothing you'll hear me say is intended as legal advice. Anything that sounds like that to you, just consider it something somebody else might do on a planet far, far away where the law matters. It doesn't matter here. I prove it on a daily basis. Believe it. Uh, yeah, Doreen Hendrickson refused to sign and file tax returns under penalties of perjury. And uh, while it is outlandish, it is not my problem. Uh, she has the backing of somebody that's incompetent. That person is her hubby, Pete Hendrickson. And it's not my burden. Uh, my stuff has existed out there since 1993, 1994. And when Pete Hendrickson looks at Section 83, he says, it doesn't apply. It's irrelevant. It has no relevance. Not going to look at it. Not going to interpret it. Well, uh, go for it. So uh, you can't. The, the reason I'm so keen on Section 83. Again, I found a bunch of case law, and this, of course, is on wevgov.com. Chris will give you that website for anybody that's new to the call. I, I suspect nobody on the call is new to this call, but for what it's worth. WeVGov.com on the federal income taxation page, those cases that say Section 83 applies to all property transferred in connection with the performance of services. All compensation for services. It explains how to tax it. It governs the taxation of all compensation. Nobody has a choice. If it screws me, I'm screwed. If it protects me, I want those protections. 
Now, you go into court with a statutory argument, and uh, it's just another aspect of corruption. If statute protects you, which I believe Section 83 does exactly that, we have, uh, and this is one of the cases that I pasted into the window here. It's uh, Security Bank of Minnesota versus Commissioner. Since there are no people on just the phone, you're all on the computer. You can see the case site. I'm not going to read it to you. Uh, well, for people that download the call later um, and listen to the call, it's 994 Federal 2nd 432. That's 994 Federal 2nd 432, 8th Circuit, 1993. And uh, I have a statutory argument. Pete Hendrickson had a statutory argument under Section 1341, but he didn't have any case law that says 1341 explains how to tax compensation. He didn't have any case law that said you have to consider Section uh, 1341. So he had a theory about that statute. I don't have a theory. I have a mandate. The courts, like it or not, 83 applies. You have the Supreme Court in uh, U.S. versus David Lanier. And in there they say that uh, to learn, uh, you don't have to look at a Supreme Court case to know what clearly established law is. You can look at appellate cases. So a case doesn't have to necessarily reach the Supreme Court before it establishes what is the law. It can be an appellate-level decision. <clears throat> and I have appellate-level decisions that say Section 83 explains how to tax compensation. So I start with a mandate from the court. I have to consider Section 83. Then you have the case of Security Bank of Minnesota versus Commissioner, and I want you to listen to this for the sentiment that it is the job of the judiciary to say what the law is. Marbury versus Madison, which was cited in U.S. versus Lopez and a couple of cases since then, the judiciary's duty is to say what the law is. And here we have a case where the bank says one thing about a particular statute and the Commissioner of Internal Revenue says another thing about that statute. They have different opinions or interpretations of the same statute, and this court is going to tell you what its job is. The parties provide vastly differing interpretations of the statutory language and both contend that the language clearly supports their, uh, their position. The Commissioner's argument has considerable force, if one focuses solely on the language of 1281 and 1283 and divorces them from the broader statutory context, but we cannot do that. The Supreme Court has noted that the true meaning of a single section of a statute in a setting as complex as that of the Revenue Act, however precise its language, cannot be ascertained if it be considered apart from related sections or if the mind be isolated from the history of the income tax legislation of which it is an integral part. According to the court, the construing court's duty is 
to find that interpretation which can most fairly be said to be embedded in the statute in the sense of being most harmonious with its scheme and with the general purposes that Congress manifested. Finally, when there is reasonable doubt about the meaning of a revenue statute, the doubt is resolved in favor of those taxed. Very simple uh, notion. We have to get into the middle. We have to interpret this statute. They have differing opinions of how to read a particular statute. We're judges. We're going to get in the middle and resolve this argument. See how that works? And yet, when you go into court on Section 83, us uh, frivolous, and they won't get into the language of the statute. They'll mention the statute only to say that your argument is about Section 83. They won't get into 1.83-3G, the regulation that says, for the purposes of Section 83 and the regulations thereunder, the term amount paid refers to the value of any money or property paid. And they won't get into that because labor is property and its value is everything you receive from it in an arm's length transaction with your employer, your customer, your client. And so they won't get into it. The government won't even tell the court, we have a differing interpretation, a different interpretation of Section 83. They'll simply say, it's frivolous, Your Honor. And the courts say, yes, it's frivolous. Well, I got news for you. I know what frivolous is. And this is another site that I pasted into the chat. Tyler versus Carter, 151 FRD, 532nd, Southern District, uh, U.S. District Court of New York, 1993, 151 FRD, 537. FRD is Federal Rules Decision Reporter. And in 1993... Terry Smith Tyler filed a civil lawsuit against Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot, American Cyanamid, Iron Mountain Security Corporation, Defense Intelligence Agency, IBM, David Rockefeller, Rockefeller Fund, BCCI, and NASA. And here's what Tyler sued over. Plaintiff brought the action against the president, former president, federal agencies, private corporations, and private individuals alleging that they were engaged in a conspiracy to reinstitute slavery and oppress political dissidents. Some defendants moved to dismiss. The district court held that claims describing fantastic or delusional scenarios could be dismissed as frivolous sua sponte. That means the court can do it on its own. Even though plaintiff was not proceeding in form of papyrus. So even though Terry Smith Tyler paid the filing fee back in 1993, which is probably 150 bucks, the court says that it can dismiss the lawsuit if it's fantastic or delusional. Claims describing fantastic or delusional scenarios are subject to sui sponte dismissal as frivolous, even though plaintiff asserting claims is not proceeding in form of papyrus, but rather has paid the filing fee. District court would, sui sponte, dismiss as frivolous plaintiff's claims against federal agencies, 
president, former president, private corporations, private individuals, alleging conspiracy to reinstitutionalize slavery and oppress political dissonance. Claims describe fantastic or delusional scenarios. So they're saying we're going to dismiss this lawsuit because it's frivolous. The claims are fantastic or delusional, or both. This case is before the court on a motion to dismiss by defendants President Clinton, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Plaintiff has also filed an order to show cause why the World Trade Center bombing should not be enjoined. For the reasons set forth below, plaintiff's order to show cause is denied and the clerk of the court is directed to dismiss the complaint. The World Trade Center bombing she's talking about was the 1992 explosion in the uh, basement parking garage of the World Trade Center. Uh, it'd be easy to find background on that uh, on the web. And here's the case background. Plaintiff Terry Smith Tyler, appearing pro se, filed a complaint. Uh, let's see, filed a complaint in December of '92, alleging a bizarre conspiracy involving the defendants to enslave and oppress certain segments of our society. Plaintiff contends she is a cyborg, and that she received most of the information which forms the basis for her complaint through Proteus which I read to be some silent telepathic form of communication. She asserts that the defendants are involved in the Iron Mountain Plan, which provides for the reinstitutionalization of slavery and blood sports, which she identifies as death hunting and witch hunting, and the oppression of political dissidents, herself included. Plaintiff's complaint alleges a number of personal indignities visited upon her by the defendants strafing of my dormitory room by planes and helicopters, the electronic bugging of my student rooms and apartments, deliberate noise harassment, blasting of loud rock music with lyrics designed for witch hunts, students following me around to prevent me from studying, whispering campaigns of social ostrification. Plaintiff also makes the following allegations against the defendants. Former President Jimmy Carter was the secret head of the Ku Klux Klan. Bill Clinton is the biological son of Jimmy Carter. President Clinton and Ross Perot have made fortunes in the death hunting industry and are responsible for the murder of at least 10 million black women in concentration camps, their bodies sold for meat, and their skin turned into leather products. The defendants are also responsible for breeding farms, which turn out 2,000 black girls a year, who are then sold for recreational murder or as human pets. Additionally, the defendants utilize weather control and earthquake technology to threaten other countries that object to the Iron Mountain Plan. <laughs> wow. And here's footnote number one. Death hunting is described by the plaintiff as follows. In death hunting, teams of pimps and harriers, women working for the pimps, follow a black woman they want to force into sexual slavery and snuff rackets. They try to wreck her employment prospects, isolate her socially, break up with her friends and families, often then try to force her onto welfare because it often circumscribes her choice of places to live. Sometimes 
sometimes members of a woman's family or her mate will be cooperative or part of death hunting teams because participants get paid. Plaintiff asked the court to grant her relief, uh, uh, the following relief. Number one, $5.6 billion in compensatory and punitive damages. Two, a physical accounting of all black women born since 1940, including their present whereabouts, and for those who have died, an investigation into how they died. Three, the purchase of land in Africa for the emigration of abused black women. Four, the bringing to justice of those responsible for the American Holocaust. Five, an investigation into the foster care system and a physical accounting of all black children placed into foster care. And six, an end to slavery in the United States. Seven, the end of the cyborg program run by NASA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, American Cyanamid, and IBM. Eight, an end to the donor uh, to the organ donor program. End of relief requested. And the court gets back into how are we going to deal with this? Uh, it's frivolous. It's without merit. And so, uh, in the past, we've had to dismiss lawsuits and. Uh, we look to the past and we find that really there is there's a good reason to dismiss this and the court has the authority to dismiss it without even engaging in an exchange of motions by the parties. And they dismissed her lawsuit as fantastic and delusional. So in the court, when you make a statutory argument, we have the opposites here. I've been deprived of Section 83. It works a certain way, Your Honor. Now, is that frivolous? Or is it one, uh, is it a claim that requires the court get in between the two parties and sort out the language of the statute like we heard in Security Bank of Minnesota? These two cases are opposites. One is fantastic and delusional. The other one is about a statute. The courts say, explain how to tax my paycheck. So when they say, oh, this is frivolous, Your Honor, you say, no, Section 83 is not frivolous. I'll tell you what frivolous is. It's Tyler versus Carter. That's frivolous. I, on the other hand, have a claim that requires you get in between the two of us and sort out the language of the statute after considering considering the legislative history and the surrounding uh relevant internal revenue statute. Just like it says, that's all I've ever asked them to do about tax code section 83. If I'm wrong, let's get into the language of the section. And I have questions for review. What's your interpretation of 1.83-3G when it says the amount paid is the value of any money or property paid? Well, we can't talk about it. Frivolous, meritless, when we know their job to be the opposite. They're supposed to get into it. They're supposed to sort it out. And here on the uh, federal income taxation page of wevgov.com, I just added this at the top of the page, uh, we see a case that was already there. The taxpayers were entitled to know the basis of law and fact on which the commissioner sought to sustain the deficiencies. Helvering versus Ten, uh, Texpen Oil Company, Supreme Court, 1937. Where is that gone? 
Now you don't have the right to know the basis of law and fact. The next one, though, I just added. But the Internal Revenue Code cannot be so read, for each section is not a self-contained whole, but rather a building block of a complex interrelated statute. Hartman versus Commissioner, 1975 Tax Court. Exactly. And it doesn't say here that there are certain statutes that, well, even though they apply, we can just run from them when somebody argues them. That's not how it works. I scroll down to the bottom third of the page, and I have number three, all property is an amount paid in red. And there are the, case, uh, the cases that say Section 83 explains how to tax all compensation. There's even an Internal Revenue Ruling 2007-19 from the IRS's Office of Associate Chief Counsel, 2007, Section 83 provides for the determination of the amount to be included in gross income when property is transferred to an employee or independent contractor in connection with the performance of services. And right below that, <clears throat> 2007, I went to U.S. District Court in Seattle to listen to a couple days' worth of testimony in a criminal trial for failure to file tax evasion. I had tutored the defense counsel on Section 83 a couple weeks before the trial and gave him my book about Section 83 and my briefing, all that good stuff. <clears throat> and on the stand is the investigating IRS officer, Sue Besson, and he asks her, uh, how long have you been with the IRS? She says, 20 years. He says, what's the difference between an IRS officer and an IRS agent? She says, officers can recommend prosecution. He asks her, how many investigations have you done in your 20 years? And she says, about 500. And then he says, how did Section 83 operate in your conclusion that Mr. Gebauer owes a tax on his compensation? And I, I was there for this. I saw her, I watched her say this. I heard it right out of her mouth. She says, I am unfamiliar with Section 83. Was she lying or was she telling the truth? 20 years on the job. She's lying. It's an argument so powerful that someone with 20 years on the job that can recommend prosecutions, who's done over 500 investigations, they have to lie to it to keep from having to talk about it. She knows all about it. I've been hitting the IRS with it since 1993. And yet someone of her prowess sits on the stand and lies about it, basically professing to be an idiot. I've been on the job for 20 years. I can recommend prosecutions. I've done over 500 investigations, and I have no clue about the statute that tells you whether or not I know what I'm talking about. She knows all about it. And she's been told by her boss, don't talk about it. Say anything you have to to get out of it. Can I tell them I'm unfamiliar with it? And the boss says, that's good. That's a good one. Just tell them you're unfamiliar with it. So counsel asks the next question. Well, are you aware that Section 83, and the judge interrupts him 
and says, go on to the next question. Every judge is as corrupt as the day is long. All the judges know about Section 83. And he was ready for it, and he told counsel to go on to the next question. So you got someone on the job for 20 years that says right on the stand, they're unfamiliar, under penalties of perjury, that they're unfamiliar with the statute that explains whether or not they have a clue. Well, are you aware that Section 83, and the judge says, go on to the next question. That's something else. It's the opposite of frivolous. I know that much. And I know that their job is to get in the middle and interpret statute when you got a different interpretation than uh, the government does. And I watched the judge's job go right out the door that day. It had nothing to do with the proceeding. The judge was there to hang an innocent man. That's every federal judge. Without exception, they are corrupt to their core. They're corrupt as the day is long. I watched it in person. And it's not about whether somebody was murdered. It's about money. And here's the, uh, the best example of it I could point to in a million years. They say, oh, it explains how to tax you, sure. But we aren't going to talk about it. It has nothing to do with this court because this guy's going to prison. It had nothing to do with the law, despite the fact we've seen that it's the judiciary's duty to say what the law is. We got differing interpretations of the same statute. We have to get in the middle of it and say what the law is. Well, not today. Not when it comes to Section 83, but it's anything but frivolous. It's the opposite of frivolous. Because Security Bank of Minnesota versus Commissioner tells us right there on the appellate level, and the Supreme Court has said this a million times, we got to follow the law. We're just judges. We look at this statute, what it says is a plain mandate. So unless the, the language of the statute is ambiguous, our job is over. And yet, that day in Seattle, in August of 2007, the judge's job to do that went right out the door and had nothing to do with the proceedings. Go on to the next question. But it's anything but frivolous when an IRS officer of 20 years has to lie and claim to be unfamiliar with the most basic element of her employment responsibilities. I'm unfamiliar with Section 83. Well, you derelict witch and you recommend prosecutions when you're unfamiliar with the statute that determines whether or not you know what, that you have a clue? There. I just stripped there the federal government over Section 83. There's nowhere to hide from this. And I did it with two cases and that testimony that day. And the fact that Section 83 is universally applicable and uh, what a, omnipresent. It governs how to tax your paycheck until it comes time for the court to do its job and then the judge just leaves and becomes a tyrant right in front of you. What is a tyrant? 
it's a lot easier to say what a tyrant is not. If you were to sit in a corner uh, with uh, a rapper and a bartender from a biker bar and compare notes for five years without a break on the worst things to call somebody, the worst things, profanity included, the worst things you can call people, if you thought for five years on it and compared notes and came up with a list of the the worst 10,000 things you can call somebody and all of it sounds like a compliment, the word you're looking for is tyrant. A tyrant is not all those things. A tyrant is worse. And that's every federal judge. That's this IRS officer, Sue Besson, and anyone that would perpetuate this when the record of appellate cases and Supreme Court cases is literally stuffed with references to this mandate that it's the duty of the judiciary to say what the law is. If the language of the statute is clear, our job is over. And we have to follow the statute. We're just judges. That all flies out the window for money. And that man went to prison, ordered to pay likely in excess of a million dollars in restitution. So uh, those are the gears that turn on you when, uh, when you seek to argue tax law. So I've given you, here's a case that says what the judge's job is. Here's a case that is genuinely frivolous, and they're opposites. One is a controversy regarding the language of the statute. The government says one thing, the bank said the other, and the judge says, well, we got to get in the middle of this. Calm down, everybody. We're going to figure this out for you. And in the other case, the judge says, Plaintiff contends she is a cyborg. She gets all her information from Proteus, some kind of telepathic spirit. And she's made all these fantastic and delusional claims about death hunts and, uh, and killing black women for sport on the part of former presidents of the United States. Bill Clinton, maybe. But Jimmy Carter, never. And so they dismissed her lawsuit. It's frivolous. So we know what frivolous is, and we know what frivolous is not. And yet, when faced with Section 83, what frivolous is not doesn't count. I am unfamiliar with Section 83, says the IRS officer of 20 years. Well, are you you aware that Section 83 explains that? Go on to the next question, counselor. And so that man never got his day in court. The judge's job had nothing to do with the proceedings. They were there to send an innocent man to prison. There. There's a, a stark, uh, starkly apparent and manifest image of corruption right there. And it involves a statute I wrote a book about. I'm the only one that teaches it in the known universes. Code Breaker, the Section 83 Equation, is a book I wrote in 1994. I added 30 pages to it almost two years ago and published it. And it's for sale on wevgov.com. An argument so powerful that an IRS agent, an officer of 20 years, will say I'm unfamiliar with it when they know all about it. And the court 
will sculpt the proceedings to avoid it, despite the, the judge's job. Can I get an amen? So um, I hope you look up these cases. Uh, if you have my criminal complaint that was filed in Congress, if you're a if you bought Take from Caesar Volumes 1 and 2, then you have the briefing. And in the 58-page memorandum, um, in the 58-page memorandum, uh, let's see, it's going to be probably between page 12 and 16. There's an excerpt from Security Bank of Minnesota versus Commissioner. Um, you can always appeal anything uh, to answer the question that's in the chat. Uh, the lawyer could have appealed it. I don't know if he appealed it. I doubt it. Um, there you are. Uh, you, lawyers, that if you have to teach a lawyer a tax argument before, right before they go into a criminal trial, it's nothing they're going to have enough confidence in to really appeal. And I wasn't asked for more participation beyond that particular stage, so I just don't know. So anyway, uh, right there, between those three points, Tyler versus Carter, frivolous. Security Bank of Minnesota, it's not frivolous. We've got to solve this problem, interpret this statute. And number three, when it comes to Section 83, the judge's job doesn't count. We will not solve this problem. We will run away from this statute. And a professional of 20 years is allowed to lie on the stand and say, I don't know anything about that statute, gee. In the same year, 2007, when the IRS chief counsel says, Section 83 provides for the determination of what is to be included in gross income. <laughs> Checkmate. So the courts, because the buck stops at the court door, uh, the courtroom, the courts are the problem. Because of the courts, the prosecutors can be what they are. Because the prosecutors are what they are, the IRS gets away with being what it is. And this illustrates, it proves corruption at every level from the IRS agent that knocks on your door or levies your paycheck all the way through the federal appellate court level. In the Supreme Court, it's anybody's guess. You got to go to the court with a great question. And I've had 20 plus years to think about the question. And the question is, doesn't it violate the void for vagueness doctrine when the statute that explains whether or not you owe a tax is a secret? Boy, that's a good question. And I think that's one the Supreme Court could not resist. They have to be looking at the tax code knowing that for generations it's been begging for challenges like this. And you look at what I know and you look at what everyone else does not know. They don't know what I know. I'm the only one teaching Section 83, and it happens to explain it's the definition of income. Only the excess over the amount paid is gross income. It's the definition of income. 
Income is defined in the code because cost is defined in the code. Cost defines income. And so the entire Patriot movement, oh, voluntary compliance. Prove to me there's a tax to even volunteer into. They can't because they don't even know Section 83 exists. When you show it to them, they look away and say, oh, it's Beyonce, I got to go. What's on Oprah? And now you get into the character flaws of the average American, which complements beautifully the corruption of the system. Americans refuse to steer their country. They will not grab the wheel and take their country in a righteous direction. They're snake fascinated when they're not outright terrified of government. So on this call, you have an opportunity, as you have every week when I'm here with Chris. I'm doing the Saturday calls now. This is Wednesday, February 24th, 2016. On Saturdays, you can find me on 59615. There's an archive there of my own calls. My show is No Confidence, and I get into a bunch of different topics. And by the way, the last show that I uploaded there is uh, an interview with Kurt Riggin, uh, criminal procedural specialist out of Colorado. He used to live here in Washington. I met him in probably 1996, late 1996, and uh, he was my mentor for going beyond tax law into everything else. I took the attitude that he had and kept that attitude through all the rest of my analysis and experience in, uh, in state law, municipal code, and federal law, and uh, you got to listen to that interview. He's um, he's he's one of the masters of self-taught litigants. And uh, uh, Lewis Ewing and I are a direct result of Kurt Riggin. Kurt Riggin created both Lewis Ewing and I. And uh, it's when you listen to the interview, I make that remark. I tell them, well, if anybody that's listened to my calls before, now they know where I got my attitude. When the law's on your side, you pound on it. Uh, like you're the only one with uh, with a stick of dynamite and everybody else is unarmed. That's what the law does for you. Uh, you have all the power when the law is on your side. Wear it. Wield it. And uh, don't take no for an answer. So you definitely want to uh, download that call off of 59615. And uh, it's near the top of the hour now. Why don't we open it up for question and answer? Uh, the people that want to be on the uh, South Carolina lawsuit, we're about to close the door on who will and will not be listed as an original plaintiff to the action. So if you want to be named in the caption, you want to join it now. And uh, it will include joining the criminal complaint that I filed with Congress January 1st of 06. It's 10 years old now. And you'll become a co-complainant if you think you've been deprived of the provisions of Section 83. And uh, the broadest, probably the most relevant question asked in that lawsuit is a request for the court to affirm that, you know, 
I'm on record with Congress with a sworn statement, and now I'm on record with this court with a sworn statement saying that I don't believe I have a duty. I want the court to declare that in the future, if I fail to file or fail to pay, I'm not willful when it comes to tax evasion or failure to file. I don't believe I have a duty. There's no reason I should live my life in fear of being prosecuted when I don't meet the essential elements of those charging statutes. And everybody can use that type of a court order. Uh, September 14th is the last we heard in the court in uh, South Dakota where the first lawsuit was filed. The government in early August filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. The plaintiffs filed an opposition pleading to the motion and then the government filed a rebuttal to the opposition on September 14th, October, November, December, January, February. It's been five months and 10 days. That's about 160 days, and we still don't have a decision uh, in that court on whether or not the lawsuit will go forward. Uh, it's not a motion. Uh, to answer the question in the chat, it's a request for basically a declaratory judgment, but it's not made under the Declaratory Judgments Act because 28 U.S.C. 2201 does not apply to tax cases. So we've simply asked the court for an order uh, affirming that I'm not willful. And so 160 days goes by while they decide what to do. Um, a couple months ago, there was a uh, notice of appearance, as Chris told you, uh, filed by a second attorney. The first attorney, Erin Gallagher, did not withdraw from the case, so they're keeping her probably as a, uh, as a placemat, somebody to argue the motions to go into the court because she's local to the South Dakota court. But the other attorney is from Connecticut, so they've got two attorneys now. And uh, I think that is an indication that they believe it's going to move forward. I don't know why they would they would get another attorney on the job if it was just going to fizzle out. Uh, let's see. Freedom to reign. What are the advantages of being the primary plaintiff? It's not necessarily an advantage. It's a, uh, a bragging right if you're named in the caption. Instead, later, uh, you could file a, an affidavit of joinder under Court Rule 20 saying, I'm similarly situated, uh, I want the same remedy, and I hereby join that lawsuit as a similarly situated plaintiff. And so you're not in the caption. You're not mentioned in the original lawsuit. So when it comes time to photocopy the thing and serve it on the IRS, your name won't be in the caption, but you'll be part of the record as a co-plaintiff. It's just a bragging right. <clears throat> well, if, if if you're a plaintiff and um, and if you have like the one question that came to me today, uh, the guy is going to be joining. He says, uh, "Can I name the people that are stealing my money right now, even okay. though they they weren't named in the uh, when I did the complaint, uh, when I joined the complaint? Can I name these individuals in this lawsuit?" 
Um, you can do anything you want. It's a matter of whether or not the court will accept it. Um, I see, and plus, if you add those people, then you have to formally serve them with a copy of the lawsuit uh, through probably a sheriff and get a proof of service and supply it to the court. It's a bunch of extra paperwork. You don't necessarily need to. What I would do instead is uh, join those people uh, that you think are criminals, join them instead to the congressional criminal complaint, uh, do that first, and then decide if you want to join them to the lawsuit. The lawsuit is already so far down the road that I think it's uh, it's inappropriate. Okay. And talking about the um, the uh, injunction act, you know when um, you know it's it's obvious that Congress wrote right after the Civil War that a tax issue you can't do a, a declaratory judge judgment or an or an injunction. But what about for wrongful taking of tax money? Would that would you have that... to pay, you have to pay the assessment first before you can sue for that? Oh. Okay. All right. Does anybody have any questions? Uh, place it in the chat. There's nobody on the phone. And in the uh, chat, I put I put 26 USC 7421 AIA Anti Injunction Act. No proceeding shall be maintained in court to prevent the assessment or collection of taxes. And over time, there's been a few exceptions inserted into that statute. <clears throat> and that in the lawsuit I explain how that's a false shield because the lawsuit does not seek to restrain the collection or assessment of taxes. It may be about taxes, but it doesn't ask for an injunction against assessments or collection. And twenty eight twenty two oh one is the Declaratory Judgments Act. All right. Okay, everybody. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, everybody. And uh, I'll see you Saturday on my call on 59615. Remember here at uh, 87488, there's an archive of calls you can download. And at 59615, there's another archive. And uh, I look forward to seeing you there. Take care, everybody. My pleasure. And if anybody new on the call, you can reach me at American Liberties. Here, I'll write it in real quick. American Liberties dot llc at gmail dot com and uh, God bless America and this call is officially over. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.